Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ahir Shah. In 1980s Britain, the culture of investment changed dramatically. In 1984, that 3.5% of British adults owned shares. That was the year in which BT was privatised. And just four years later, that proportion had risen to between a fifth and a third of the adult population owning shares. What shaped this change in investment culture and how does it affect us today? Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Amy Edwards, Senior Lecturer in Modern British History at the University of Bristol and author of the new book, Are We Rich Yet? The Rise of Mass Investment Culture in Contemporary Britain. Dr. Edwards, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, thanks for having me. In your book, you identify this massive cultural shift in the mid-1980s where, on the face of it, seemingly overnight, investment fever took hold of Britain, but you also explore the longer history of that culture, right? It's not quite as simple as just Thatcher did it, right? Uh, Could you talk us through that history and the deeper roots of this cultural shift? Yeah, sure. I think uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is that really this mass investment culture that we see by the 1980s and that we associate so much with it is kind of a century in the making. And there are these patterns at different points in time where certain conditions produce a moment of opportunity where the number of people, the type of people who are interested in and know about and involved in in investing grows for different reasons. So um, an early example of that is the railway boom of kind of the 1840s, 1850s, where because of a whole load of new railway companies and this big massive expansion um, in different types of industry and companies producing them, there's this moment where there's all sorts of new companies and an interest in getting more and more people to provide the money for that. So getting more types of people to offer up a bit of money to support those companies. There are other kind of developments a bit uh, kind of 20, 30 years later, the growth of the financial press. Again, this happens in waves and ebbs and flows across the next 100 years. But that early moment is the kind of 1880s. You see the emergence of the Financial Times and the financial news. And it's, again, people suddenly being interested in not just giving share prices and really technical information, but actually making share ownership and knowledge about share ownership a bit more available to more people. So there's suddenly more like interest stories and bits of gossip from the city that get people kind of interested. So between a lot of those different things, you see these um, ebbs and flows. And another moment then is like the 1960s, where again, you see new papers like the Daily Mail and the kind of newspapers we'd be familiar with. So the everyday press suddenly starting having these sections at the back of their papers, which is about just gossip from the city and things that might mean that someone who isn't already interested in the city and shares and stuff might suddenly have a bit of an interest. So the seeds of this expansion were sort of sown in the preceding century, but it really does seem from the stats that there was a real sea change in the 1980s, right? Things like uh, mass advertisement of shares and share offerings, the stalls in Debenhams, share perk schemes. Like There's a median age in the UK is about 40. So those of us who are there or younger won't really remember this happening, right? What, What did this change in the 80s sort of look like and feel like on the front line of it? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I sometimes think that, so part of the argument of the book and something that I think about this is that whilst there is this longer history, the timing of this is partly to do with Thatcher and Thatcherism. And so one of the features of this is privatisation, which perhaps we'll talk about in a bit, but there is this mass government campaign that's about advertising share ownership to people. So suddenly shares is on TV, you hear government ministers talking about it. And so that's one side, there's this political side. But as you say, there's this whole kind of culture around that that also starts to explode in the 1980s, so that people are suddenly seeing yuppies, so city traders, 
are not just on TV when they're being done up for fraud or when there's a stock market crash or something like that. Not that only bad things happen in the city, I don't mean that, but they're also suddenly characters on sitcoms um, or in dramas or there's a game show called The Stocks and Shares Show where people are invited on to fictionally invest um, in money and people watch these contestants try and make money on the stock market essentially and so it becomes like a form of entertainment in a way that it really hadn't before the fashions of the city are suddenly everywhere and designers are using pinstripe suits and trench coats and things that normally would have been associated just with bankers are on the runways in New York so there's this moment where the culture of the city starts to ripple out across society and become part of popular culture in ways that it hadn't really before I think that's really interesting because like many of the stories that I was aware of about the way that sort of investment culture changed in the 1980s was to do with these big privatizations yeah. of formerly state-owned industries, your, your British gases and whatnot. And I hadn't realized the extent to which like that's only part of the story, right? Because at the same time, the deregulations, I guess, associated with the Big Bang in 1986 led to explosions in all sorts of areas of financial services yeah. and trading that were very much uh, sort of given over to try try and get mass market appeal and participation. Uh, could you shed some light on what was going on outside of the world of just these sort of large-scale privatisations? Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, some of this is still to do with government policy and in particular there's a couple of acts to do with the deregulation of the city where the government is trying to open up the city to more competitive forces. Some of this is to do with Thatcher has this real thing about the old boys club and because she believes in the free market, she wants to introduce competition and she sees the city as a bit of a closed shop. So she's interested in opening that up. And so part of that, as you say, is also to do with um, privatisation and those kinds of things. But essentially what she does is remove the barriers that had stopped different types of institutions, financial institutions, from doing different types of financial business. So suddenly there's this, all this competition. Some of this is about clearing banks, um, well-known high street retail banks uh, like Barclays and Lloyd's suddenly being allowed to do different types of business. So, of course, they've got this huge customer base and they go, well, yeah, we're going to start selling those people um, mortgages. We're going to start selling those people investment services where we can actually provide them for the first time. So they start trying to buy out smaller city companies, um, so stockbrokers and stock jobbers, to create these big, um, what's often described as financial supermarkets. So it's a one-stop shop for all your financial needs, basically. There are other things going on as well to do with um, overseas. A lot of American companies and financial institutions are also buying up British ones. So this, this moment of kind of complete unseating of the existing order in some ways, although what happens by the end is that actually they're still a lot of large financial institutions who control a lot of the way that money moves around. But it's it's this moment of uncertainty in the city, which means that companies start experimenting with all sorts of different things. With these explosions of new products and services, yep. you know, they're all of a sudden start being like guides in all the newspapers of like get your supplement on how to invest and like books that are all just called like variations on essentially get rich quick yeah. uh, but then you know no one's gonna buy a book called get rich slow and methodical uh, or whatever <laughs> yeah. how much of this was just sort of scamming really at the time when people were all of a sudden all of this new stuff existed and they didn't really know what was what yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's one of those where there's a real mix in inevitably where there's a sense that there is money to be made. And part of the way that you might make that money is because a lot of people who've never really done investing or own financial products and assets before have opportunities to. 
people are going to jump on that. And that ranges from the very legitimate all the way through to the completely fraudulent. And so, like you said, with these investment guides, some of them are being produced by very well-respected financial journalists who've been working in the press for years, former MPs, and all sorts of people are getting involved in this. But there are also a fair number of charlatans who are... I mean, have, I guess, have you seen The Wolf of Wall Street? Mm. It's that kind of business, sort of penny shares, like promises of quick riches to be made, when actually, as you say, really a lot of the advice that was tending towards the more legitimate was a bit more like long-term investment is actually where the money is. And yes, you might want to do a bit of like privatization stuff, but even then keeping shares for a long time. But as you say, that doesn't sell copies. So there's this kind of dual set of pressures between people wanting to sell copies and you do that by making investing seem exciting and you're going to make money quickly and buy and sell all the time whilst also trying to offer sensible advice for people who really don't have loads of money to lose necessarily on the stock market. So I know that it was a feature of these privatizations that very often people who may, this may have been the first time that they'd bought shares or anything like bought some, saw them go up pretty yeah. quickly, turned it for a quick profit. And then lots of it just ended up with larger institutional investors and things yeah. like that. And so the sort of long term gains didn't really accrue to who superficially, at least uh, yeah. politicians had said that they wanted the long term gains to go through. The cover of your book features David Jason as Del Boy in yeah. Only Fools and Horses. And I'm sure even if you don't remember this period, you can probably hear in your head him saying this time next year, Rodders will be millionaires. So I guess I want to find out who did succeed really out of these changes in British society, because there's I suppose the winds may have been concentrated, but there's a big difference between the winds were concentrated versus only X group benefited from. Like, how, how did different groups succeed or fail in this change? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the one thing that I always try and remember for myself as well, when, when you're researching this stuff, it's easy to see investing everywhere and assume that everyone was investing. Of course, a lot of this is completely out of reach for a lot of Britons. Even the privatisation shares, which are marketed and designed to be accessible and cheap and that as many people can invest in them as possible, you still have to have like a £250 lump sum, which for a lot of people, they just don't have £250 that they can kind of risk in that way. And investing properly is costly, like you need access to a stockbroker, you need to be able to pay for advice. So for a lot of Britons, this either passes them by completely or they are just completely excluded because it's not financially viable. So in many ways, a lot of the people that you would expect are investing is, as you say, stagging share offers. So um, buying the shares and making maybe 250, 500 quid profit, buying a nice, like going on holiday or something with the, uh, with the funds that they get. So I think a lot of people who are investing in this period when investing, when the nation gets the share bug are middle class people um, with that little bit of extra capital. But as you kind of suggested, the real big winners out of this big shift change in British society are financial institutions, because one way or another, they find ways to use this sudden moment of excitement to encourage people to invest with them. Or uh, there's all sorts of adverts, for example, after the privatization of BT or the ones that have become these like big national news stories, which um, a lot of people, they applied for shares, but there weren't enough shares for everyone who applied. So some people then didn't get the shares. And you suddenly see in the days after privatization, all these adverts from Lloyds and whoever else saying, oh, did you miss out on your shares? Why not invest with Lloyds and something else? 
So just using this moment to encourage people to invest with them and then putting their money in different ways, buying up all the shares that people sold off quite quickly so that by the end, all of the business that is coming out of this moment of kind of shares fever still ends up kind of running through the large institutions. So to my mind, that's the kind of real big winners. I guess the other side of this is even if you know, the largest gains went in a sort of the house always wins yeah. uh, sort of situation, I guess what you're trying to get to the core of is the way that this shifted the culture, right? Because yeah. it still became the case that, for example, share ownership expanded among groups of people who traditionally weren't involved. Mm-hmm. It's like far, far more women than had previously been involved, yeah. uh, got involved through the 80s and like lots of stuff was directly targeted uh, at women. So I guess... I want to come on now to the way that this changed us. You write about this cultural change happening very sort of Hemingway-like gradually, then suddenly, and evolving into the eventual, you say, financialization of British society. What do you mean by that? What does it mean in the cultural change for us? Yeah, so I think the way that I think about this is a bit like I was talking about earlier, the way that finance and financial institutions and stock markets just appear as a bit more of a norm of everyday life. So after the 1980s, and certainly as you head into the 90s and 2000s, everyone is a bit more attuned to the fact that a rise in the stock market or rise in the FTSE 100, people know what the FTSE 100 is, for example, in a way that a lot of people wouldn't have. We definitely both know (laughs) (laughs) what what that is. (laughs) So people get used to the idea that, you know, there's a downturn in the market. You hear a little bit about it on the news and you think that's bad for the economy. And that means that's probably bad for me in some way. And this idea that people are a bit more familiar with the language of the stock market in ways that tie people into the system of financial capitalism in ways that they hadn't. So one of the big things here is the way that share ownership moves is not so many people directly own shares, but trying to imagine your life without being in some ways connected to a financial institution Um, seems fairly impossible now, whether that's your current account, your mortgage, your pension, uh, depending on if you're lucky to have all of those things, your credit card, all of those things, our lives work through being involved in one way or another connected to financial institutions. So that's the kind of financialization of society. It's kind of impossible to imagine our lives without these big financial institutions. The indirect part is a huge element of that, right? Like I think most of us probably don't think of ourselves as like directly involved in this sort of thing. I'm not like moving share. I as you can tell from the fact that I use the phrase moving shares, <laughs> I, I don't uh, move shares. But um, in 2006, there were still 46% of the population held shares indirectly as pension fund members. And 2006 is way before auto enrollment. So yep. now it's like a very large majority. So now it's like our involvement is even more complete than it was. You write that people were asked in one way or another to attune themselves to the market. By the 2000s, the British public had not become a nation of Thatcherite popular capitalists. They hadn't engaged in a wholesale embrace of fee market neoliberal reform. They had, however, readjusted their sensibilities towards its underlying logic. And I guess this is what you're getting at, the underlying logic that now underpins every element of our lives where it does seem impossible to escape from the is there any escaping it? Is is it like is is it bad? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit. Re- it's I, just the water we swim in now. Yeah, it's a really nice phrase actually. And um, funnily enough, there's uh, another academic called uh, Wendy Brown who talks about neoliberalism, and she's looking in different ways at some of the things that I'm interested in as well. And she talks about how this free market logic has become the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in. And I suppose 
it's some of those changes that I think that it does feel impossible to escape sometimes. And that, that's partly why I'm interested in this, because I'm interested in historicizing it and going, but this is only really recent. It feels like mm. it's always been here. It feels like this is the water that we swim in. But I, I mean, I'm now making this a really stretched metaphor, but perhaps we weren't always swimming in this water. We were swimming in other waters at some point as well. There's a lot of debates about financial literacy, for example, and how much, mm. how important it is, given that we live in this world, that we should actually be training kids at schools to understand finance and to know how to read financial markets and to make those kind of wise investments um, in different ways. Whereas previously, uh, you know, the purpose of education, and this is what Wendy Brown talks about, was more about training citizens to be able to debate, to debate and be active citizens in a democracy rather than economic agents in a free market. And I suppose that's where the shift is. I may be slightly going off on one at this point. <laughs> but yes, uh, in a long story, I think uh, it, it does feel kind of impossible to escape. And that's that's the cultural bit that I'm interested in, yeah. is that how far this is spread out way beyond the world of high finance and politics into our everyday lives in different ways. Thinking about this topic really made me think about how much I have just sort of imbibed uh, yeah. the sort of culture around me. Because on the one hand, think about the idea of going into just a shopping center and there being a stall there where I would suddenly buy a share in a company or something that feels entirely alien to me. And like, yeah. oh, God, I can't believe that such things would have been marketed in such ways. And yet then I remember only recently you'd see ads on the side of a bus. God knows how they were allowed when you saw like, oh, when you're seeing crypto being advertised on a yeah. bus, you know, it's time to buy. And even I know that it's definitely time <laughs> not to buy. Is that is, I suppose, this sort of thing, this expansion and popularization of all of these alternative weird you know, crypto products, NFTs and stuff. Yeah. Is this sort of the next continuation of this cultural shift in some way? I think so. And I think, again, when I started researching this, suddenly then when I was making trips to London to come to the archives, I was on the tube and I would see everywhere on the tubes all those adverts for a mobile app where you can invest as you go, like invest on the move and all of those things. And it was really interesting because the kind of language and messages that I was seeing in the sources I was looking at from the 1980s about, well, investing's for everyone now and it's safe and we're making the market accessible to all and this is a moment where suddenly John Smith has as much chance of making money as Mr. Capitalist Big Man. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's go with that. But yeah, so I think it was funny because those messages were in all of the adverts of the 1980s. And it's, it's a similar kind of language if you go, if you're looking at how these apps and things are being sold for people to then, in theory, kind of get into crypto. So yeah, I think it's kind of an extension of the same kind of thing. Yeah. And uses the same sort of emotions that like making yeah. you feel sort of like cowardice if you're not getting involved yeah. and courageous if you are and all that. Yeah. And selling it partly as excitement, partly as this opportunity to like even the playing field but also then trying to reassure people, being aware that people are, you know, if you're someone who's investing for the first time, you don't really know what you're doing and you feel a bit nervous and you maybe feel a bit cowardly. And there's a kind of, re it's there's a lot of emotions in all of this as well. And that's not something I've had a chance to look at so much, but I'm quite interested in moving forward is the kind of emotional world of investing and what it felt like for people who were suddenly finding themselves in this world where it was kind of expected or at least a topic of conversation and people talking about their portfolios over dinner and you being saying like, what the fuck is a portfolio? <laughs> well, Dr. Edwards, thank you very much. I think that this topic is such a 
key thing for understanding the bits of our lives that have now become so entrenched that we yeah. take for granted. And it's really good to hear from you on the story of how we got to a place that maybe isn't as inevitable as it seems and yet feels like the web that we're enmeshed in ever more thoroughly. Um, so it's fascinating to speak to you. Dr. Edwards, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Are We Rich Yet? The Rise of Mass Investment Culture in Contemporary Britain by Dr. Amy Edwards is out now, published by the University of California Press. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends. And if you like what we do at The Bunker, you can help keep us going by backing us on Patreon. You'll get the show without ads, plus a lot of extra benefits. And if enough of you do that, then this time next year, Rodders, we'll be millionaires. <laughs> I'm Ahir Shah. Thank you very much for listening. Bunker Daily was presented by Ahir Shah. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. With additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a podcast production. You stupid little plonker, Rodney.